It's so good to be with you all. Um, I just want to, whoa, there we go. Before I start the sermon, I just want to jump on the announcement about youth volunteers. And here's why I want to do it. There was a study done out of Fuller Seminary several years ago by Kara Powell and other folk that looked at what helps high school kids transition to college and keep their faith. And they said, it's not amazing youth programs, though that helps. What it is is kids who deeply understand failure and grace. And then one of the second things they said was, and a key thing that most churches don't do is kids who have multiple relationships with adults and seniors who are not their own parents who are following Jesus. That was one of the key indicators. The kids who only had relationship with a youth pastor and their peers didn't sustain their faith in the same way that kids who knew a lot of adults who cared for them, prayed for them, and modeled failure and grace. And so I'm just going to encourage you, um, not just because I care about youth ministry, but um, the faithfulness of our kids over time is directly correlated to the number of adults who invest in them while they're in high school. And so your every now and then appearance will have far bigger impact than just giving youth workers a break. And so I'm just going to offer that to you as a reinforcement to an announcement because I could not help myself. Let's pray and then we'll do the actual sermon. Lord, we gather before your word because you reveal yourself through it. And so we pray. Holy Father, um, catch us up in your purposes. Lord Jesus Christ, may we glorify you. And Holy Spirit, may we be attentive to your voice and submitted to your purposes so that you, triune God, would be glorified and honored in every place in the world. Amen. I always wonder how God starts new things. In part because I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on college and university campuses, we're always starting new things. There's always a fellowship to start or restart. There's always a program to launch. And I think about it because as um, our sister prayed during the congregational prayer, we're in a world that desperately needs new things. Because we live in a world where Gun violence like we experienced here in the Chicago area is no longer even sustainably newsworthy. It's now just one of the monthly occurrences that we expect. Because the reality of war and destruction continues on and on, and Ukraine is at this point now somewhere on page two or three of the newspaper, if you're even looking at a newspaper. Because we've just come to accept it as true and normal. And those of us who pay more attention to the globe would say Ukraine is but one of many multiple wars, and that one just happens to capture the attention of the United States for all sorts of reasons that are sociological and historical. Because we live in a world where the families around us are under deep stress and fracture, where people regularly, I just saw yesterday, um, a colleague of mine, a close colleague of mine, texted me last night at 9.30, I just found out my eldest nephew was killed um, due to a gunshot uh, after a dispute with a neighbor in his apartment building. Would you pray for my family? Right? That these are so normal and so average and so unremarked by us. And I have to ask, what is God doing? And what is he calling us to do? And how are we to engage? 
And when I think about how new things begin and how God interrupts the status quo, I often think about Nehemiah chapter 1. If you know the context of Scripture, you know Nehemiah chapter 1 occurs after the kingdom of Israel has fallen, after the kingdom of Judah has fallen. The people of God um, have been sent into exile, into Babylon. And over time that they've returned, and this occurs toward the end of the exile, as some of the people have returned to Jerusalem, the temple is being rebuilt, but not everything is yet done. And you pick up the story of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah. How does God begin a new thing? I think if you pay attention to the text, you'll notice God begins a new thing. When God interrupts and calls his people to begin a new thing, it occurs because we decide we're all in. We decide we're all in intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. In part because God speaks through minds thoroughly informed by reality. Did you notice the beginning of this chapter, how Nehemiah seeks out information. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was at the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and their gates have been burned with fire. What I so deeply appreciate about Nehemiah is that his mind is engaged. He's actively asking questions that disturb him and trouble him so he understands what's going on. He's living comfortably at the citadel of Susa, but he asks about the situation of the exiles who've returned from Jerusalem. And there's what I love is even though he lived in great comfort— And even though he lived in great security, he's asking about people who are not living in the same situation. He's gesturing at it. He says, I live at the citadel of Susa. Susa was the summer capital of the Persian Empire. It was the economic center of the empire. It was the military center of the empire. Because he's living at the citadel, the fortress of it. Right? It's the political capital of the Persian Empire. In modern parlance here in the United States, we would say it's a combination of Washington, D.C., New York City, and whatever our military headquarters would be, right? It's the safest, richest, most insulated part of the empire. And what does Nehemiah do? When he hears people come from Jerusalem, he seeks them out and asks, what is going on? What's happening? And it disturbs him. There's a deep danger for those of us, particularly those of us who live in the western suburbs, of Chicago, of insulating ourselves from reality by pursuing success and security. Because when you insulate yourself from reality, you insulate yourself from the world that God loves. And you inadvertently insulate yourself from being engaged in the world that God loves. And this I know is true in part because many of us live in the western suburbs because we're looking for that kind of insulation. We're actually looking for good schools so that we don't have to worry too much about bad schools. We're looking for good communities so that we don't have to worry about violence. We're looking for the good kind of kids that we want our kids to be around so they don't have to worry about a bad crowd that they might fall into, right? Everything about the western suburbs, from the way the streets are designed, the neighborhoods are planned, the schools are funded, is designed to insulate us from reality of the rest of the world. Some of us... I joked about the newspaper earlier, but many of us don't even follow the news anymore because we'll say it's too depressing and it's too discouraging. And 
unlike in past generations where you were confronted because there was only three channels and you ran across the news all the time, we can now so narrowly tailor our thing that the totality of our media consumption might be what you're binging on Netflix because you choose it, podcasts that you choose because they inspire or encourage you, but rarely are we exposed to the news that might disturb us. And since you're a largely Asian-American church, this is actually what our parents sacrificed for in many cases. This is what they immigrated for, that you would have opportunities and security and insulation from all of the experiences that they struggled with or that their parents struggled with in Asia. And that's certainly what my parents told me, right? We, want, we came to the United States and sacrificed so that you could go to a good school. Why? So that you could get a good job, so that you could live in a good neighborhood, and that your kids could go to a good school, and that they could get a good job and live in a good neighborhood. And like generation after generation, they were hoping that this would happen. I realize it's not just that we live in places that allow us to be insulated or that we make choices about being insulated, but often it's just our way of responding to the... Re- Um, oppressive reality around us. I remember being at the Chicago Cultural Center in downtown Chicago on Randolph Avenue a few years ago, and they had um, a photography exhibit by a Brazilian photographer named Sebastião Salgado. Uh, Sebastião Salgado has made it um, one of the leitmotifs of his artistic work to go to places of deep distress and to capture the humanity of the people who were there. And so in this case, it was... um, pictures of the Rwandan genocide. And he was one of the first people on the ground and he took pictures over the next couple months. And I remember just standing in front of the pictures, just silent, not sure how to engage. And this young couple walked past him, he looked at the photos and just said, oh man, that's unreal. That's unreal. And I remember thinking with a sense of outrage in my heart, the problem is that's not unreal, it's actually so very real. It's not unimaginable. In fact, it's graphically presented right in front of you so that you can't think it's just a figment of somebody's imagination. But there's something instinctive when we are confronted with trouble, distress, or destruction to go, oh, that's unreal. Ugh, unimaginable. When, in fact, I think the Christian response should be, tell me more. Tell me more about the distress. Tell me more about that pain. Tell me more. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Even though I lived at the citadel of Susa, when I heard my brothers came, I sought them out and asked them, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they said, the city is in great distress. The people are troubled. And what I love is it's not just that he's intellectually engaged, but then he becomes emotionally engaged as well because God speaks through minds that are thoroughly informed by reality and God speaks through hearts that are thoroughly broken by the brokenness of the world. Look how Nehemiah responds in verses 3 and 4. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Right? He responds to reality of his people with mourning, fasting, and prayer. Not just like once, oh, that was so distressing. It's been 20 minutes. Let me move on to a worship song that encourages me. 
Not, oh, that's terrible. I'm muting that on my Facebook feed. Or, let, no, that's so depressing. I need some chocolate ice cream. Like, whatever it is, Nehemiah doesn't shy away and begin to soothe himself. Instead, he presses in and he mourns and he fasts and he prays, not just for a day, but for several days. For a lengthy period of time, he allows it to affect him because he doesn't want to be isolated from that. And I think part of the challenge and difficulty we have is it's hard to hold both the negative emotions that we're feeling from troubled situations with the actual reality of who God is. But you have to do it if you want to see how God might start a new thing. Many years ago, I helped plant an Asian American church here in the western suburbs. It was called Parkwood Community Church. And one of the habits that we had was after church, we'd all go out to eat lunch together. This was before we had small children. Um, and I remember I was eating lunch at a Bona Beef on Butterfield Road near Finley Square Mall, for those of you who are western suburb people. And I was eating across from a friend of mine, um, named Jana, and Jana turned to me at one point and said, you know, it always bums me out when you pray at church. And then she started eating again. And I looked at her, because that's not necessarily what you want to hear as one of the leaders of the church. It bums me out every time you pray. So I mustered up the courage and said, why do I bum you out every time I pray? And she looked up and said, you know, I come to church after a really long week. Work is hard. My family situation is hard. The world is hard. And all I want to do is to be lifted up and encouraged for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And so we're singing these worship songs about God's love and faithfulness. And my spirit is rising. And then you come up and you start your prayer almost every week with something like, Lord, during this 90-minute worship service, nine people will commit suicide. 1,500 people will starve to death. 800 people will contract HIV. And you go on and on and on. You bum me out when you pray. And then she took a bite of her sandwich. I didn't know what to do, so I took a bite of my sandwich. And I thought for a moment, I said, I swallowed and I said, you know, um, you know, the reason I pray that prayer that way is um, I work on college campuses, and people frequently quote to me that quote from Karl Marx, right? Religion is the opiate of the masses. It's just designed to dull us to the pain of the world and make us easier to control. And if I can't both sing about God's beauty and faithfulness and love, while at the same time recognizing that people are dying of preventable causes while I sing that, if I can't enjoy the companionship of my fellowship here while recognizing there are people dying in isolation the very moment I am praying, then Marx was right. Religion is just designed to dull us to the reality of the world. But for me, the act of worship is to hold those two things in tension. To say both of these are true at the same time. Lord, what do you want me to do? And allow myself to be so disturbed and preturbed by it that I turn to God. That's why I pray these prayers. I'm sorry they bum you out. But that's what spiritual integrity looks like in a real world. And that's a little bit of what happens next, right? Because it's not just that God speaks through minds which are informed about reality in these ways or hearts that are thoroughly broken 
But God speaks also through our soul's rejection of the status quo, right? We should, when we see the shooting in Highland Park or in Texas, or when we talk and hear about continued famine in parts of Africa, or the civil unrest that occurs in Latin America, or civil war that's occurring in Congo, or the situation in um, Xinjiang in China, or right North Korea, like any of those things, part of what should happen in our soul is we should rise up and go, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what God intended. If you pay attention to Genesis 1 and 2, and you look at Revelation 21 and 22, and you go, what did God intend? It's not this. It's not death and destruction. He intended flourishing. It's not people attacking people. It's people flourishing in partnership. It shouldn't be human beings exploiting the environment. It should be stewardship to the glory of God. Like All of that is what God intends. And part of what faithful engagement looks like is allowing our souls to go, Lord, this is not what you intended. This is not what you want. That's what so distresses Nehemiah in this case, you'll notice he says the walls of Jerusalem have broken down and that doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't live in walled cities. Right? I mean, we, some of us live in gated communities but it's really different. If the walls of your city have been torn down and burned with fire, it means you are a two-bit town. You aren't even worthy of defense against your enemies. If the walls have been torn down, it means you are of no particular strategic, political, or economic influence. You're a nothing. If your walls have been burned down, it means you're defeated. And you're headed toward ultimate disillusion. If your walls have been burned down in modern parlance, it would be you're in a town that doesn't even deserve a Starbucks in your grocery store. Right? You're nothing. And for Nehemiah, this is an unacceptable um, condition because Jerusalem, as he points out in verse 9, is the place where God said would be a dwelling for his name. How would the nations know that Yahweh was supreme? It was because at Jerusalem they would see his glory. How would they know that Yahweh is faithful? Because they would see in Jerusalem that the Davidic Um, kingship had continued. How would people know that God was the Lord of lords and the King of kings? But it was from Jerusalem that the beauty of the Torah would be made known and people would willingly embrace the law as a way of following the Lord. And Nehemiah thinks nobody is going to see that in a town with burned down walls. The people are defenseless. The glory of God is unseen. And this is unacceptable. So where does Nehemiah go when his mind is clearly saturated and thoroughly informed and his heart is broken by reality and his soul is rebelling against the status quo? He does the only thing you can and must do, which is he turns to God. That's why you have this prayer, and it's a beautiful, powerful prayer. And I want us to look at it carefully because I think God doesn't just begin a new thing when we're fully engaged. That just leads to Um, passionate activism without necessarily much power. God begins a new thing when we're thoroughly engaged and when our prayers are thoroughly saturated with the knowledge of who God is. There are three critical aspects about who God is that Nehemiah focuses on in this prayer. 
The first one is this. He knows God's attributes. He knows the kind of God he's worshiping. Look at verses 5 and 7 and how he describes God's attributes there. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenants of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. What do you hear about who God is that Nehemiah immediately instinctively turns to? He says, you are the Lord, the almighty and powerful God. I know you're sovereign and powerful. I know you keep a covenant of love with us. You're powerful and you're loving. And I know we failed you because you gave us laws and commands and we've sinned against you. I know that you're holy. Nehemiah knows that God is powerful, loving, and holy. And he goes, if I know you're a God of love who is holy and you're all-powerful, I know really three crucial things about you already. Then Nehemiah goes on, not just about God's attributes, but he says, I know your character. You're faithful to what you say and what you will do. Look at verses 8 and 9. Remember, Lord, the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He says, I know not only that you're powerful, loving, and holy, I know you're faithful. I know you're faithful to what you said. I know you're faithful to your promises. I know you're faithful to your purposes. I don't need to worry about your character. Then the last thing Nehemiah says, I know something about your attributes, your power, your love, and your holiness. I know your character, that you're faithful, and I know your purposes now. Look at verse 10. Why am I interceding for them, Nehemiah says? These are your servants and your people who you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Did you notice that Nehemiah doesn't talk a lot about, these are lovely people, Lord, they're so nice. Lord, they're really pathetic people. They deserve help. Lord, they're lost. Would you do something about them? Nehemiah focuses instead on God's purposes. They're your people. You redeem them for a purpose, Lord. You promised you would bring them back to this place where you would glorify yourself in front of all the nations. Nehemiah is caught up in God's purposes at that moment. He's not praying because the people deserve it. He's not praying out of pity. He's caught up into God's purposes. He said, I know your attributes. I know your character. I know what you're about. You are here to glorify yourself through these people that you have chosen and you have redeemed. So fulfill your own purposes right now, Lord. Accomplish what you desire in this moment. And that's why I think Nehemiah can be so bold in prayer. Because if you know something about God's power, why would you pray to a God who is incompetent or impotent? And you know something about his character, because why would you pray to a capricious God who couldn't be relied on or trusted? And you know something about his purposes, because why would you pray if you didn't think he was motivated to act? Nehemiah suddenly then bursts forth in prayer, right? 
Look at verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the eyes of this man. Right? Nehemiah basically is now pounding the table in his prayer. Let your ear be attentive. Listen to me. And what I want to suggest is it would be a mistake to believe that powerful prayer occurs just out of personality. We've all been with people who pray and they're pounding the floor of the table, right? Particularly if you grew up in the Korean church. Like there's a lot of emotional energy there, but that's not what makes prayer powerful. That just makes it loud and intense. It doesn't have to do with the deep wells of emotion in you, though that can certainly be impressive. What gives prayer power is the powerful God to whom we pray. Right? It has nothing to do with us and our personality. It has nothing to do with us with how much we can work ourselves up into energy. It has to do with we are so caught up in who God is that suddenly intercession bursts forth from us, whether energetically because that's our personality or quietly and fervently because that's our personality, with either really eloquent words because that's what we're good at or with groaning that matches the groaning of the Holy Spirit who prays when we ourselves cannot find the words, right? It doesn't matter the form. It matters to whom you pray. And from that moment for Nehemiah, intercession bursts forth. The old um, English pastors used to call, talk about it and they use this word, which I love, it was importunity, demanding that God listen. Not because we're so worthy of being heard, not necessarily because we've battered down the walls of heaven to convince him to listen to us, but because we've been so caught up in who God is, we're like, God, you want this yourself. I, I'm not even asking you to do, I'm trying to convince you this is what you want. So would you do something here? Nehemiah clearly believes that his prayer is grounded in God's person and God's character and God's purposes. And that's why if you come to the prayer meeting this week, I hope we wouldn't experience a boring prayer meeting. Because if they're boring or dull, it's because we have not been sufficiently caught up in who God is. It starts with who God is, and then everything else flows from there. Um, the illustration I often use on campus is something like a rubber band, right? If you know that the world is really in a broken place, right, that there are people dying of preventable causes all the time, and it's hunger and it's disease and you, but God, you designed people to flourish, and I know your character, you are loving and you're holy. The tension, right, as it continues to increase, as the distance between what we experience and who God is begins to put a lot of energy, and then suddenly prayer just really shoots out and begins to pop. I know, Lord, that people are perishing without you and they're lost in sin, and yet you love them. Jesus died for them. You continue to send the church into the world in mission for them, and then suddenly, prayer should really just pop out of you. Lord, I know my friend is really struggling right now. I've had three friends diagnosed with cancer in the last few months. All of them are terrible cases, and yet I know these are people that you love and care for. You intend the world to be a place where your healing arm is experienced, it's not hard to pray. And that's what Nehemiah prays then. Lord, give ear to your servant because I know who you are and I know where the world is and the distance is great. Would you do something? 
How does God then begin a new thing? It begins when Nehemiah is intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually engaged. It's when he knows who God is. And then he begins to consider his own unique situation and placement. Did you notice that kind of throwaway line right at the end of the chapter? I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, it seems kind of odd, like, you know, Lord, the city's in ruins. I'm begging you to do something. And you think, so you're a waiter. What are you going to do? But in the ancient Near East, being a cupbearer to the king was far more than just being on the wait staff of the royal table. The cupbearer to the king was an intimate and close friend. In fact, a position of great power and influence because it was the cupbearer who largely was responsible for ensuring that the king wasn't poisoned in his drink. It was the cupbearer who was then in charge of making sure that there was no way the king was going to be poisoned. So if you want to think about it this way, using more modern parlance, the cupbearer was in charge both of supply chain issues to the palace as well as food preparation, distribution, and basically espionage and intelligence services because you had to know who might want to poison the king at what points to ensure that the supply chain was safe from grape to table to mouth. You were the king, you were the person the king trusted with his safety, his security, and his life. And Nehemiah says, the city of my ancestors lie in ruin. Lord, I need you to do something. And I might be the person the king trusts more than anybody else in his entire kingdom. What could you do with me here? I wonder, where does God have you? And why has he put you there? Why are you in the place that you're at? I want to suggest to you that none of you live in the neighborhood you live in by accident. The Lord has brought you there. None of you have a job right now that God did not put you in for a reason that goes, that includes, but does not, but sorry, that includes, but goes beyond getting a paycheck. The Lord put you there. There's not a one of you who is at home right now with your children and interacting with your neighbors and the parents of your kids' friends that the Lord has not put you there. Why has God put you there? I don't know. That's not for me to discern. What I do know is God has put you there. And he's put you there for a reason, to engage the broken world that God loves. It may not necessarily be dramatic. You may not be able to stop gun violence across the United States by being in the job that you have right now. You might not be able to stop the war in Ukraine or in Eritrea, in Ethiopia, by being a homemaker right now. You might not even be able to cure the problems in the public school system in Illinois by being a teacher or a parent right now. But wherever you are at, God has placed you there for something more than just getting a paycheck to ensure your security, to ensure that the next generation has something better than you have right now. He's invited you to be there to be a part of his purposes. And the beauty of being a church together is not only that we encourage one another, but we should be a place where in our small groups and at our prayer meetings, at Sunday worship, and as we converse with one another, part of what we're trying to figure out is why has the Lord placed you where you are at to fulfill his purposes in the world in a way that include daily provision, but go far beyond that to catch you up in his purposes.
And if the church would engage in that way, I want to suggest to you that worship would be incredibly rich, wouldn't it be? If you actually believed on a day-by-day basis, in however small and unobservable way you were participating in God's purposes, that you were able to actually entrust yourself to God's character and attributes, his power, his love, his holiness, and say, I actually am pressing that forward, not necessarily in dramatic ways every day, but step by step, small thing by small thing. I I know several of you are teachers. I've talked to a few of you already. Um, It may just be that small act of kindness or observation about a child at your classroom who desperately needs a little bit of affirmation and attention that could change the trajectory of their life. My high school newspaper advisor just passed away of cancer about a week ago, about a month ago. I have not stopped thinking for almost four weeks in a row of the enormous impact that he had on me. His encouragement and his challenge, the way he came alongside me to affirm me and has continued to do so over the decades. Completely has changed the course of my life and my ability to even preach this sermon today. Why has God brought you there? And how might he choose to use you? Let me end with this story. This was not the career I was planning for myself when I was in high school at CCMC. Um, Will can tell you, I come from a family of doctors. I'm that Chinese person, right? Um, 18 of my cousins are doctors. My cousins, aunts, and uncles are doctors. At this point, my brother-in-law, my wife, my brother-in-law, my sister, my dad, right, in my immediate family, they're all doctors. So I was on the doctor course. I was never planning to be a professional Christian. I was, ha- I was all set to be a generous Christian, a happy-to-serve-at-church Christian, but not to have to do this professionally. So how did I end up here? Because this was not the career I was planning for myself. It certainly was not the career my parents were planning for myself. At the end of my freshman year at the University of Chicago, the leaders of the ch- campus fellowship came to me and said, Greg, we would like you to consider becoming the president of the chapter next year. Now, I knew that they were going to invite me to be a leader because, in, because, frankly, it wasn't a very big fellowship, and you could just figure out, like, these people are graduating, these people are too young, these people are tired. So, like, there was only a small group of people. It was going to be obvious I'd have to be one. I was a little surprised that they'd asked me to be president. And being the University of Chicago with all the social awkwardness that comes with that, I see you, Jaime, you know what I'm talking about. They said, you just need to know, as you consider this, you were not our first choice. In fact, you weren't even our second choice. They've already said no, so we're coming to you with this instead. And with that rounding um, endorsement, they said, so would you consider being president? And I was about to say yes, and they said, wait, wait, we don't want you to say yes right now. You should pray about it. Now, to give you a slice into my soul, my initial response to them was going to be, you need me to say yes. You're running out of people really quickly. You don't have time for me to pray. But I said, okay, I'll pray about it. And so I took the next week to pray. And the way I prayed was this. Um, at the University of Chicago, there's a large ornamental gate that um, leads from, typically from the University of Chicago from the library into the main campus. It's called um, Cobb Gate. And Cobb Gate is super ornate, and it's the main entrance to the university. And so I walked into the quad every morning for two weeks. And I sat over Botany Pond, and I watched people walk in through Cobgate, and I began to pray for them. I didn't walk up to them and say, hey, can I pray for you? Because that's kind of off-putting and creepy to people. 
though remarkably effective in some situations. I just sat there and I prayed for them as they walked through. Lord, um, would you meet this person? Lord, I don't know what's wrong with them, but would they experience your Holy Spirit's power today? Jesus, would you reveal yourself? And slowly these um, strangers as they came through became real people to me. I saw the student who I knew got drunk every weekend and never knew who they were going to wake up with the next morning. And rather than thinking, oh, how promiscuous, I thought, how desperately lonely they must be and in, and in search for love, and I began to pray. I saw faculty members walk by, right? Faculty members, you think, oh, they have my future in their hands, and I thought, Lord, how terrified they must be that they're not going to get tenure today. How worried they must be that they're not going to get the grant that they need to have funded so that their lab can continue. And I began to see them as people with deep needs and brokenness. I saw administrators, and I thought, Lord, I have no idea who these people are. They're faceless to me and nameless to me, and without them, I would not have a university education. We treat them like drones, and they're invisible. That you love them, and you care about them. And slowly and terribly, my heart began to break. My mind became more informed, and my soul was like, these people need Jesus. And now 30-something years later, lo and behold, I'm a professional Christian working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. If you allow your mind to be engaged, your heart broken, your soul enraged by the difference between the status quo and what God intends, if you saturate yourself in who God is, his character and his attributes and his purposes, then I think prayer is catalyzed in a new way. And it won't just be abstract prayers about somewhat distant things. But suddenly our whole beings will be caught up in God's presence. And then the prayers you pray, I actually believe, will change your church, will change our community, and will change our world in part because we will be changed in, into people who are actually caught up in what God is doing. And I have to believe if you show up here every Sunday or you're joining us on YouTube every Sunday... That's what you actually want. But it's not worth it otherwise. There's so many other things we could do on a Sunday. We could be still sleeping or eating brunch somewhere downtown Naperville. But we want to be caught up in what God is doing. And we want to be changed. And we know the world has, needs to be changed. And we do so to the glory of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Catch us up in your purposes, Lord, so that we confront the brokenness of the world with courage and curiosity and faith. Catch us up in your character and in your attributes so that we know you are a loving, holy, just God who desires to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And then, Lord, wherever we are, use us to glorify yourself to alleviate suffering and to cause flourishing so that people would stand back and say and see. Lord Jesus, he is good and he is faithful and he's true and that the world would worship and the world would wonder and come to faith. Amen.